Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include conference chit-chat, my interview with Arrive Homes' Ty Christensen on how diversity, equality, and inclusion benefits your business and can actually benefit your bottom line, and how manufacturing activity is impacting the Fed's decision-making. I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, Simple Nexus, an Encino company and award-winning developer of mobile-first technology for the modern mortgage lender. To learn more, visit simplenexus.com. Since light travels faster than sound, some people appear bright until you hear them speak. (laughs) There are plenty of bright speakers at mortgage conferences, and be sure to sign up for MBA's Independent Mortgage Bankers Conference in San Diego next month the 23rd to the 26th. Despite travel budgets, salaries, and personnel continuing to be cut back, at this point, double bunking at the conference appears not to be widespread. And yes, owners of vendors and third-party providers are looking at painful cuts to middle layers of management and unproductive salespeople. One topic at any gathering is volume. Is your pipeline down about 70% versus a year ago? That could be about average. Total mortgage acquisition volume plummeted 62% in the third quarter, according to a new Milliman report. Of course, refi activity drove most of the decline in volume. On a year-to-date basis, refi originations were down 87% in the third quarter. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show Ty Christensen, Chief Diversity and Public Relations Officer for Arrive Home, a national down payment assistance social enterprise for multiple government entities. She has nearly 20 years of experience in the mortgage industry, specializing in working with underserved communities. She serves as chair of the American Mortgage Diversity Council, the AMDC, and also serves as a board member for Axis Lending Academy, a nonprofit that specializes in lifting diverse talent within the mortgage lending industry. So part of your title is that you are the chief diversity officer for Arrive Home, and that's an interesting title and a, probably a very necessary title in not only the mortgage industry, but many industries uh, throughout throughout the economy. How did you get to this place where you're the chief diversity officer? What, what led you here? It's kind of an interesting journey, to be honest with you. So I've been in the mortgage industry for almost 20 years. Uh, not to date myself, I am almost as old as a dinosaur, apparently. <laughs> and for many, many years, I was in retail. So I started my career as a processor, a remote contract processor back in 2002, which work from home opportunities back then were like hardly ever heard of. Everybody thought it was crazy that I work from home. I did that until 2007. And then after the Great Recession, I transferred into loss mitigation. And I was in loss mit for 10 years. I did a lot of work in loss mit. And those were some satisfying years when you could save a family's home. And it was deeply depressing uh, when you had to make the phone calls that you were not able to help people. So after about a decade of being in loss mit, I was over it. I wanted to work with happy homeowners buying their first home again. So I got back into retail um, and I started underwriting. So I was an underwriter for about two years. And then I had an opportunity to go speak at the Congressional Black Caucus for uh, the previous company I was working for. The year prior, they'd been given the same opportunity. And they sent our VP of sales, who is a wonderful man, uh, but he is white. So the message of 
you know, extending home ownership to minority communities, utilizing down payment assistance uh, from this really tall white guy to a group of black uh, congressional black caucus members, that didn't go over very well. So the next year they asked if I wanted to go, I was one of only two black people working for the organization at the time. Went out there, gave my speech, never went back to underwriting. I started traveling around the country talking about extending down payment assistance opportunities to um, to minority communities. And then um, when the George Floyd murder happened in uh, June of 2020, you saw a real shift specifically in the mortgage industry uh, where people were really taking the message of diversifying not only their homeowners that they were serving, but what their employee base looked like in order to, let's just be honest, endear themselves to minority communities, they needed to start hiring a more diverse work group. And so I was given the opportunity to become the chief diversity officer for the company I was working for at the time. I built out an entire DEI platform. Uh, I built out a DEI committee. We had ERGs focused on it. And I really started getting vested in the space, attending conferences where I learned about diversity. Um, I joined the American Mortgage Diversity Council, of which I am now chair of the council. Uh, we built our own DEI certification course to extend it to the mortgage industry. Um, and so I've really just been vested in this place of really wanting to see the housing industry diversify. Um, it's very important, specifically as we're experiencing this browning of America. Um, you know, and then by the year 2040, we will be a majority minority country. And it is important that we can speak authentically to the communities that we want to serve. So if we really want to bring more people of color into the industry, we have to start uh, with our individual organizations and making them reflect the communities that we want to serve. So, so that's kind of a little long story short of how I got to where I am now. How do you feel about diversity in the mortgage industry? Or maybe the maybe the progress of diversity in the last couple of years of the mortgage industry is a better question because it, you know, I go to these conferences and and for years and years it was just all kind of like white guys in suits. So where are we? Where are we headed? How do you feel about it? So it's funny, I just got back from um MBA annual in Nashville and I I serve on their DEI committee um on, on that platform as well. And Elisa Haynes is a good friend of mine. She said at the beginning of the DEI committee that the mortgage industry she has heard being referred to as pale, male, and stale. <laughs> um, and so I was like, wow, okay, that's a little harsh, but 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 maybe accurate, you know. So when I first started traveling and going to conferences, absolutely I saw a lot of men, specifically older white men, mm -hmm. uh, were typically the attendees, right? But now, you know, I just, like I said, I just got back from MBA annual. I was at NAMBA before then. I was at the NARAP conference. There seems to be a slow shift. You know, when you walk the floor at these conventions, you don't just see a lot of old white guys. You still do see them reflected. But I see older Black men. I see lots of Latin women. I see Asians. And so, you know, it's 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 more of um, it's not so much the pepper granule and the salt jar anymore where you see a, a little fleck here or there. It's starting to kind of be a little bit more melting pot-ish. And my hope is that in the next five to 10 years, it will truly be as diverse as the country, the country we live in. I hope so too. As chief diversity officer, what does your day-to-day -day look like? Take us inside of some of the things you're working on or uh, you know, objectives for you. Yeah, so day-to-day -day right now looks a lot like this, uh, speaking and doing a lot of public speaking about why diversity is important in the mortgage industry, specifically 
frankly, why it continues to be important as we're experiencing this kind of shift um, in, in our in our money right now. We're, we're in a little bit of a recession. Things are a little bit slower. And unfortunately, I have seen a lot of um, companies not really prioritize their diversity efforts in this space of, of uh, you know, minimal reserves, if you will. But I do think it's very important, and I speak about it quite often, that you do not cancel or close your diversity efforts while we're in this period where things are a little tighter. It's very, very important that we show that we are serious about diversity. And if the first hiccup we come across, then you're firing your, your diversity officer or you're canceling funding for your funding for your diversity committees and your within your organizations, that does not really show that you are serious about it, right? So I do a lot of speaking about that. Um, and then uh, as you know, Arrive is new. So I am actively working on building out our diversity platform as well. I'm incorporating some of the certification that we built with AMDC, the American Mortgage Diversity Council, and also kind of future visioning for what the committee is going to look like down the road. You helped me set up my next question there perfectly. <laughs> Help explain why diversity is important right, and especially important in the mortgage industry. For sure. So now I think if we can just speak in broader terms for a while, right? So let's go back to George Floyd being murdered in 2020. Every time I opened my email for what felt like weeks, it was Nike pledging their commitment to diversity, right? Amazon pledging their commitment to diversity. All these companies were donating all this money um, to the NAACP and other, and other working groups that have been doing this work for many, many generations. And it feels like there is a there was a groundswell, and then once the fire and, and the fiery speeches about diversifying our country and making everything more inclusive kind of died down a little bit towards the end of 2020. In 2021, I started slowly noticing, you know, not as many pledges were being made. People weren't taking it as seriously. Um, and so it is really important that we follow through with the words that we use, right? So if you say to me, diversity and inclusion is exceedingly important to this organization, and this organization has an inclusive place for you too. But then as soon as we reach some kind of uphill battle where maybe money's a little bit tighter, you're not getting as much yield spread, et cetera, the first thing you want to do is cut funding for the Martin Luther King Day party. Or maybe you don't want to put any effort into and teaching your employees about why Native American Heritage Month is important. As a person of color, how, how much do I believe you? How much do I believe that my place in being includes, included in this organization is important if the funding for those items go away as soon as there's any kind of bump in the road? And then how, how do I want to extend employment opportunities to my fellow people of color to say, hey, this is an industry that has a place for us too and an inclusive and welcoming place if the first time we hit bumps in the road, they remove all of our funding. It doesn't seem very genuine. And so I think as an industry, we have to stay committed to all of the pledges of inclusion that we've made broad spectrum and really hold space for people that are diverse and continue to build on these platforms, even in this time of, of you know, less income. Let's address the skeptics out there. What are the benefits to companies and to employees of, of being more diverse and inclusive? Well, forget inclusive, inclusive, that makes sense, but diverse. Yeah, so it really, so with AMDC, we did a study um, a couple of months ago, and I was in charge of doing a lot of research. And there's an amazing Catalyst uh, research group that did a whole working group on why diversity is actually important in affecting the bottom line of an organization. 
And study after study showed that diverse organizations had five and a half times five and a half times higher employee retention. They also had double as much productivity just from having a diverse working uh, employee base. And so if you're going at it from just sheer numbers, why is this important? It's not just feel good. Oh, I can look across and see the many colors of the rainbow in my employee base. No, they're actually working harder and staying longer because they feel included and they feel a familial aspect of the employer, right? They also do not have as much emotional tax. Well, what's emotional tax? Emotional tax is a language, is a phrase that was created to describe how people of color often feel at work when they do not feel like they can be their full self and they have to feel like they have to project an image that's not necessarily reflective of how they feel inside. What does this mean? Well, let's pretend you're part of one of the many, many religions where you have to pray multiple times a day. If your space does not offer a prayer room or somewhere you can go to worship and the schedule that is fitting to your religious organization, then you feel taxed. You feel an emotional tax because you have to go to your car or go to the bathroom or somewhere else that where you can do your prayers, but you don't feel like you're being included, right? That weighs heavy. Or maybe if you're a Black woman and you have a natural hairstyle, but your employer doesn't really like it when you wear your hair like that to work because they don't deem it to be professional. Well, that's emotionally taxing for you to have to straighten your hair to reflect a certain way that the corporate executives want you to look. And so we need to be mindful of this, especially as we're building out our DEI platforms and creating inclusive spaces that are welcoming to our many people of color. It's not only good for employees of mortgage companies, but also for borrowers of mortgage companies if there's more diversity or efforts to to include more borrowers from disadvantaged communities. How do you feel about the current status of uh, minority communities when it comes to homeownership and and where they are in in, uh, their ability to get a mortgage? Uh, Well, if we're going to be honest... Uh, you know, the the, the minority demographics for home, homeowners aren't really great, you know, are they? Uh, depending upon the research that you're reading, you get anywhere between 42 and 44% of Black homeowners, uh, Black Black Americans that are homeowners. Uh, the Hispanics are just over 50%. Um, and the white community, 75. So we've got massive um, homeownership gaps here within our racial demographics. And we could we could be here for hours talking about all the reasons why going back to redlining and fair housing, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just stay in the current environment right now. Um, unfortunately, the majority of our loan officers, our real estate agents, our processors, et cetera, they are not reflective of the communities that they would like to serve. And as a person of color, Uh, You know, you have experienced significant financial trauma in your life, typically just by being a person of color. Most black and brown people have seen family members lose money due to the Great Recession. They've seen their family members get either foreclosed or evicted, evicted. And they also do not have a comfortable relationship with the credit, credit industry, credit profiles, FICO, uh, you know, People of color use money in very different ways than the white community does. And so all of this translates into lower home ownership numbers. And so if we are going to speak to the problem and really, really try to do what we can to provide programs and products that are more geared towards assisting people of color in very unique credit situations, you've got to have people of color at the table helping you to craft these programs and products, right? If if you don't have someone that has walked that that same walk of life, how do you know what's going to best service those, those 
those communities. And so that's why we really do need to do everything that we can to extend the housing industry as a viable um, employer, a viable career, right, at HBCUs, junior colleges, community colleges, um, places where Black and brown people are going to get their, their secondary education. I want to close with a little more general industry question since you've been in it for a while and you've held a, a variety of jobs. What's your advice to those, and especially those from disadvantaged communities or, or people of color that are thinking about getting into the mortgage industry? Well, first of all, I, my first piece of advice was to, is to see it as a long-term career. I actually met with a group of young people just a few weeks ago from Fisk College, which is at HBCU in Tennessee. And I was able to sit with them and have a roundtable about why the housing industry needs their youth energy and color um, to start changing the tide of the industry. And my whole um, outcry to them was to see it as a long-term career. You know, specifically with young people, when they think about the mortgage industry, what's the first thing they think of? Loan officer. Oh, my buddy's a loan officer. He's making a ton of money. Oh, my girlfriend's a real estate um, professional. She's killing the game. Okay, that's great. And that's wonderful. And that's a great way to get your foot in the door. But what about compliance? What about appraisals? What about inspectors? What about legal? If you're if you're going to the law school, there are entire firms that many, many mortgage um companies employ, right? A lot of larger mortgage companies have an entire legal department um, within their organization. And so I would love for young people to not look at it as just either a loan officer or a processor or a real estate agent. No, come on in, get comfortable with title, right? You can spend an entire 30-year career in this industry and not have the same position twice. And so I think we need to start maybe advertising ourselves as such, right? Just get away from the flashy LO with the nice car. That's great too. But there's also a lot of longevity in this in this industry if you are willing to branch out and you can basically get any job that you want to if you are working hard and you really are dedicated to your career. I like that advice. I loved this interview. Thanks for talking to me, Ty. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Rap. The bond markets drive interest rates and bond yields climbed yesterday as the November Institute of Supply Managers Services Survey came in better than expected. Fueling speculation, the Federal Reserve will keep rates higher for longer in the fight against inflation. The ISM non-manufacturing index for November increased to 56.5%, marking the 30th straight month of growth for the services sector. The central bank has begun telegraphing in the past few weeks that it will be shrinking the size of its rate hikes. More germane to lending, the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller House Price Index for September showed prices were 0.8% lower than in August. However, home prices were 10.6% above last year's levels. Although price appreciation is easing, housing affordability remains challenging, especially when combined with elevated mortgage rates. In other news, recall that personal income increased significantly more than analysts had expected in October, rising 0.7%. Consumption, however, met expectations for a 0.8% monthly gain. Spending came at the expense of saving, with the personal savings rate falling to 2.3%, one of the lowest levels dating back to the 1950s. Meanwhile, employment continues to outperform, with 263,000 jobs added in November. While a trifecta of respiratory infections was cited as a reason for a drop in labor force participation, workers with multiple jobs increased 60,000 each month over the last six months. Wages continue to increase and were up 5.1% over the last 12 months. 
Despite the higher wages, there seems to be enough easing of inflation for the Fed to hint that they may slow the pace of rate increases following their meeting later this month. Today's calendar is a bit of a snoozer, which is the international trade deficit seen widening to $80 billion. After the close, agencies will release mortgage-backed security prepayment data for November. We begin the day with agency MBS prices better by a quarter, excuse me, an eighth, and the 10-year yielding 3.55 after closing yesterday at 3.60%. Yield curve fans know that the two-year versus 10-year spread is at negative 81 basis points. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. With about four weeks until the college football playoffs and eight weeks until the Super Bowl, let's continue with our clever football quotes. And first, a thank you to Dave Kay, who corrected me that it was Bobby Bowden who said he doesn't know the meaning of the word fear. In fact, I just saw his grades and he doesn't know the meaning of a lot of words. I had said it was Urban Meyer. All right, here's two more quotes for you. At Georgia Southern, we don't cheat. That costs money. And we don't have any. (laughs) This is by Eric Russell. And good old Lou Holtz, which... I won't do my impression of his voice because it's probably not PC in 2022. The man who complains about the way the ball bounces is likely to be the one who dropped it. Well, maybe that would have been more fun if I did it in his voice. I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, Simple Nexus, an Encino company and award-winning developer of mobile-first technology for the modern mortgage lender. To learn more, visit simplenexus.com. About the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.